You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you, everyone online. Good morning to you, too. You know, Chris missed an opportunity this morning. He and I are uh, wearing the same shirt, and he could have said it's twinning to look a lot like Christmas, right? (laughs) We have the same exact shirt on. I am uh, very excited to be with you. If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 8. It is going to be the passage that James read before that uh, special song. James is going to be up here solo next week, and I thought, you know, I'm I'm putting half the load uh, more on him next week. I might as well take uh, the load this week to give him an extra week off. And so uh, you get all of me today, you get all of James next week. I'm not sure if that's better or worse, Um, but we'll be back to normal after that. You know, one of my favorite movies and and honestly favorite soundtracks, uh, it's by Hans Zimmer, for those of you music fans out there, Hans Zimmer is a master, uh, is the movie Gladiator. How many of you have seen Gladiator? It's, it's older now. It came out in 2000. doesn't feel like it's that old, but it's 20 years old. Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, just a, a, great, a great story. And it's, of course, it's, you know, it's action. I'm a guy. It's, it's, it kind of hits all the marks for me. Um, one of my favorite parts of that movie is the fact that when they, when they put the movie together, they really did their homework with regard to how history worked. And they got a lot of things right. They got some things wrong, um, but they did get a lot of things right. There's, there's a, a scene that kind of repeats itself over and over and over again throughout the course of the movie. If you've seen it, you're familiar. But whenever they're fighting in the Colosseum and uh, one of the people disarms another person such that they're like on the ground and, and they can't defend themselves anymore, or maybe they're injured... And, and the, the gladiator will come up and, and kind of put the sword over them and look up at the emperor. And you remember what the emperor does? He holds his thumb out like this. And remember, if he puts his thumb down, it means execute him. Get rid of this guy, right? But then if he puts his thumb up, it means don't execute him. Have mercy on him. Mercy. There's actually one scene where he starts to put his thumb up, and then he puts his thumb down, so as to say, get rid of this guy, and Maximus still throws his sword, and all the crowd begins to chant, Maximus the Merciful, and of course it makes the emperor mad. But it it begs the question, when you watch this movie, it begs the question, how does the emperor get to decide who gets mercy and who doesn't? Like, is it just based on how he feels that day? You know, if he's having a bad day, it's like, I don't want to fight in the, the, the Colosseum today because the emperor's having a bad morning, didn't have, his, didn't have his Fruit Loops. So, I mean, hey, you know, something could go wrong, and I know I'm getting executed. Who gets to decide this? And, and as we come to our story this morning in Luke, I think we can ask a very similar question, uh, perhaps exact same question, who should get mercy Who should get mercy? And that's what we've titled the message this morning. Before we can answer that, we need to understand what mercy is, biblically speaking, because there's a lot of ideas around about what mercy is. You hear it used in different different contexts in our modern world. What does the Bible say mercy is? I'm going to give you a definition that I really like. Mercy is one's consideration of the condition and needs of his fellow man. 
Let me say that again. It's consideration, taking into consideration the condition and needs of your fellow man. In other words, when you treat someone based on not only the condition that they are in, but the needs that they have as an image-bearing human being, you are, you are showing or demonstrating mercy to them. Now, most of the time, if we're being honest, most of the time we operate from a justice point of view, not mercy. We like justice. And what that means is that everyone is treated equally, regardless of details, regardless of circumstances, regardless of how they're doing or what they're going through. Everyone gets the same treatment. There's no special treatment. There's no extra grace. There's no extra chances. It is just a a straight line across the board. That's justice. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. God is a God of justice, right? There's nothing wrong with justice until it's applied to ourselves. And then we don't want justice anymore. And praise God that God does not give us as Christians justice, because then we wouldn't be Christians. Amen? Mercy, on the other hand, says not to treat everyone necessarily equally, but uniquely. And I think that's a really important distinction. Not differently, but uniquely. Based on their condition, based on their needs, you take all those things into account, and then you treat them accordingly. So as we look at Luke 8, we're going to ask this question, who should get mercy? Who gets to decide this? Who should be treated according to their condition and their need? And I believe we're going to find the answer in this passage. First, let me give you some context, because as you know, context is everything to understanding how a Bible story unfolds. At the very end of of, uh, Luke chapter 7, Jesus has just healed a woman. If you remember, He is uh, invited over to the home of a Pharisee. He reclines at the table and eats with the Pharisee, and there is a woman there. He heals her. Uh, Beginning in chapter 8, it says that He is traveling with His disciples, that he, his disciples, and many women were with him, that he had specifically healed from various different infirmities. So uh, Mary Magdalene is there, one of the women mentioned. A woman by the name of Joanna is there. A woman by the name of Susanna is there. And then it just says many others. So there were several women that Jesus had specifically healed. Verse 22 comes along. This is in chapter 8. And uh, the, the very famous story where Jesus and the disciples get into a boat They depart into the sea. Jesus falls asleep, and a a, a raging storm begins to build, and the disciples are terrified. The winds are howling. The the, the water is just going nuts. They feel like they are uh, most certainly going to die. They rush down. Jesus is still snoring. They're like, what are you doing? Right? We're about to die. And, And he gets up and rebukes the winds, and the storms obey him. Really amazing part of the, the narrative as well. Wish we had more time to talk about that this morning. And so Jesus is, is, is exemplifying authority not only over human beings and healing them, but He's actually healing nature now as well. He's setting nature back to its uh, intended course. And, and that picks us up where we are in our passage this morning. The storm subsides. The boat comes to the intended destination. They step out of the boat onto dry land. They're in the country of the Gerasenes. And pick up with me, if you have your Bible open, in verse 27, it says, There met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had lived not in a house, but among the tombs. Okay, so pause there for a moment, and let's just be honest, okay? Let's be honest for a moment. We're in church, okay? Let's be honest with one another. This is the guy you call the police on when you see him in public. Like, I'm not going to even make any, I'm not even going to try to over-spiritualize this. He appears to be naked and has been apparently for a long time. He lives literally in a cemetery. 
He is demon-possessed. You call the police when you see this guy out in public. Like, there's not even any question about it. Everyone avoids this guy. This is not the guy you want to be around. Verse 29 says that he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So they tried to chain him up at one point, keep watch over him, make sure he didn't harm anybody. And apparently the, the demons that had possessed him gave him superhuman strength. Okay, so he breaks the chains. He's a threat to society. He's unpredictable. He's unsafe. Surely this is a man that the Bible will tell us, you need to avoid this guy at all costs. He's not safe. He has made poor choices that have led him here, and no one is responsible for him but himself, right? Not exactly. I want to walk through this passage and ask, who should get mercy? And I think this guy answers at least the first part, the first type of person that the Bible pushes us to show mercy to, and that is people who are incapable of asking for it. People who are incapable of asking for it. Now, remember, mercy is treating someone according to their condition and their needs. Well, let me ask this question. What if someone's condition is so bad that they're incapable of asking for mercy? What if their condition prevents them from being able to ask for mercy? Are we still to show mercy to them? I I think the important aspect of this part of the story is that This man is not capable of asking Jesus for help. In fact, we're we're never given any dialogue between the man and Jesus. The dialogue takes place between Jesus and the demon that has possessed the man. We never, we we know nothing about this man at all. He, He never engages. He's not capable of asking. He has been taken captive, right? His mind has been taken captive. He's possessed He has no ability to make decisions for himself. We're never told his name. We're never told how he got there. We just know that he's in a really bad place. His condition prevents him from coming to Jesus to ask him for help. And yet, Jesus treats his condition and his need. What we see happening in this passage is that Jesus addresses the problem, not the person. He never asks the questions that you would expect him to ask of this guy. Hey, what's your name? How did you get here? What, what decisions did you make that landed you here? Do you have any family that knows about you or cares about you? Where are they? Why aren't they in, in your life, right? He never goes to any of that. He goes straight to the problem. Verse 29, it says, For Jesus had immediately been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. It's like Jesus got on dry land. There was a cemetery nearby. There's a naked guy walking around, obviously a little bit of a red flag. And Jesus doesn't even, doesn't even waste any time going to get to know this guy. He, from a distance, begins calling the demon to come out of him. It's an, it's an, amazing, it's an amazing part of, of the story that I think we, we miss sometimes. There's no qualifying questions. And so what I want to do here is, before we move on, because the bulk of this is going to really, uh, the story at least, is going to come in the second and third points, but I really want to park here for a moment because I think this is something so applicable to us today, and and I don't want us to miss this application, especially for our context here at City on a Hill. We talk uh, a lot about various different um, problems, character defects that that hold a person captive. And so what I want to submit to you this morning is that while we don't really deal with demons in the same way that Jesus is dealing with one right now, at least in our modern Western world, perhaps in other parts of the world, this is still happening to some extent. Uh, and, And again, wish we had more time to talk about that. We don't. But what I want to submit to you is that perhaps there are other things other than actual demons that can take a person captive and prevent them from asking for help. 
Can we agree with that? Yeah. We, so the obvious one on the table here is addiction. Addiction. Let me give you some statistics regarding addiction. We're pretty familiar with addiction around here. We do talk about it a lot. We have a very robust ministry and heart for seeing people break out of uh, uh, the addictive uh, cycle, the, the, the addictive spiral, if you will. But let me give you some statistics just so we're on the same page. Nearly 15% of young adults in America struggle with at least one form of substance use disorder. 15% of young people. Only 10, now this is, this is the worst one, only 10% of Americans dealing with addiction will receive treatment. Understand that. 90% of American addicts will never even receive treatment for it. Only 10% receive treatment. 4% of American teenagers deal with some form of addiction. 10% of people who use opioids become addicted to them. How about this one? One in 16 adults in the United States have reported a substance disorder. That's reported one in 16. That number is likely a lot higher than that. Uh, drug overdose deaths have more than tripled since 1990. So in the last 30 years, we've seen a, a triple in cases of drug overdoses. And then last one I'm going to give you, alcohol and drug addiction. For those of you who love economics, Alcohol and drug addiction cost the U.S. economy over $6 billion every year. $600 billion, sorry. $6 billion, $600 billion, it's, I mean, it's, it's high. Now, I could keep going. This, there are, there are uh, I could spend literally the rest of the sermon just giving you statistics. There are so many out there. Uh, I, I think you get the idea. And, and keep in mind, this is really only dealing with drugs and alcohol. This does not even take an account for pornography, which is likely the biggest problem right now that we face, and food addiction, which is also a sizable issue in the United States. Can we agree that addiction has taken some folks captive in the United States? Okay, so we can agree on that. But how? How does it happen? How does it take people captive? I want to give you three ways. There is literally, first, a physical captivity that takes place. There's a physical element that takes place when someone becomes uh, enraptured into the addictive spiral, specifically with the brain. I won't go into too much detail here. We don't have time to really dive into it. It'd probably be more confusing than helpful. Uh, James is actually writing a workbook right now uh, geared towards recovery from pornography, and he gives a lot more information in that first chapter about the brain. But I want to give you some, some just basic concepts so that you can understand the physical concept of captivity when someone becomes an addict. The brain is literally changed by addiction. You have what are uh, these little neurotransmitters in your brain that send messages from uh, one neuron to another, uh, another called dopamine. Dopamine is naturally released in your brain, and it, it transmits not only signals from one neuron to another, but it really communicates varying levels of rewards. So for example, if you go uh, with some people out to a restaurant that you've never been to before, you have a great time, the food is fantastic, the service is wonderful, you get this sense of dopamine in your brain released because you're enjoying yourself. It's a pleasure center. Dopamine is the thing that kind of controls the pleasure part of your uh, existence. And so you have this dopamine release in your brain. Maybe you're out about another two or three weeks and you pass by that restaurant and immediately your brain begins to send a signal for dopamine because it remembers what that was like and goes, I want to go back there. 
The fajitas were great, right? Yeah, and so this is exactly how your reward system works in your mind. Now take, for example, something stronger like sex. Sex has a much higher dopamine release. And so what happens is the brain experiences this sense of pleasure, and it begins to want to carve a path to that experience over and over again because it wants to continue to have that dopamine release. This is the brilliance of how God designed the marriage. God puts a man and woman together. There's this wonderful gift that He gives them. It's wonderful. It's pleasure. There's intimacy. And the brain wants more of that, and so it creates a path to get to that over and over again. But here's where it gets really difficult and challenging. Pornography creates an even larger release of dopamine. And so what happens is when someone's exposed to that, they experience this larger amount of dopamine, and the brain, when given a choice between the real thing and pornography, is going to choose pornography because of what it does to it. And so it begins to want to try to create another path to get to that place where it will get this larger release. And as that path is carved, this initial path, the the healthy one, the natural one, begins to fade. And over time, you can see how this becomes very destructive. This is why in uh, addiction recovery, I've heard Brian and James will talk about this at length, a guy coming out of sex addiction or a woman, we, we say takes about five years because it takes time for these neural pathways to not be reversed, can't really reverse them, but to create new ones, new connecting points, and to uh, remove itself from the, the old one. Now, in addition to this, it, it gets worse. In addition to this, as the need for that feeling goes up, the brain begins to adapt as well. And so what once was a high release of dopamine just becomes kind of a normal release of dopamine. And then it becomes kind of a, I need more. And so an addict is forced to begin doing more and more, more extreme versions of the thing that they began with. And two things happen with this. One, the addiction spiral tightens and they go further down the hole, but second, the ability to feel anything kind of goes away. And that leads me to the second point. So there's a physical captivity. The brain chemistry is changing. But secondly, there is an emotional captivity that takes place as a result of this, okay? Uh, Because the brain is hijacked, the, the ability to feel goes down. The ability to interact with feelings and emotions dissipates. You'll hear addicts say, I've heard several of you say this before, addicts don't do feelings, right? It's because they can't do feelings. Now, on top of that, often people become addicts because of some kind of trauma in their life. So what will happen is they experience something that's very difficult, very painful, and they will use substance or sex or whatever the the thing is to cover up that pain. And, And so in addition to falling down this spiral, losing the ability to feel, they're actually covering over, repressing these traumatic moments in their lives that never go away, which creates depression, anxiety, anger, social disorders, so on and so forth. They use the drugs to cover those things up as well, and so now they're using more of the same thing or something different to interact with all of these different problems that have started, when in reality it was just that one thing that kind of began the process, and because they didn't deal with it and covered it up, it spirals into this larger problem. So, so what happens a lot of times, what we see here is that addicts will get sober, and even after they're sober, they're emotionally still children because they've never, they've never 
dealt with any of these things inwardly. On top of that, uh, neuroscience has shown us that, that people who are addicts, their prefrontal cortex, front part of their brain that uh, is used for um, impulse or long-term decision-making, shrinks as a result of addiction. So they become more impulsive. They lose the ability to see the long play. They lose the ability to see how making the right decision now or the wrong decision now could affect me in five or 10 or 15 days, months, years. It's all just right now in the moment, like a child, right? You give a child a $5 bill and say, save that for a couple months and you can buy something awesome. They're like, nope, $5, I want candy. Because they can't see ahead. They have a very underdeveloped prefrontal cortex. So here's, here's what happens. The emotional damage from addiction often prevents addicts from doing the very thing they need to do to get help in the first place. They're incapable of asking for help. They can't see a way out. It's pointless, it's hopeless, and usually it just continues to perpetuate this process of self-destruction. And then thirdly, if, as if that wasn't enough, there is an element of spiritual captivity that we face as well. Ultimately, the enemy, Satan, uh, his main objective, his main battle is the battle for your mind. The battle for your mind. This is why I believe addiction is such a good example to illustrate what we're talking about this morning. People who are incapable of asking for mercy. Because while, while in this story Jesus is dealing with a demon-possessed man, the Bible's very clear that Christians sealed with the promised Holy Spirit cannot be demon-possessed. But we can be addicts, right? We can believe lies. And so addiction poses a very great threat that even I don't believe demons pose to Christians because we're far more susceptible to it than demon possession. Now, the Bible is very clear. This is where ultimate freedom is found in the spiritual realm, right? This is where the enemy attacks. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He says in Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of what? The mind, right, the mind. This is where ultimate freedom happens, replacing a lie with the truth. But here's the problem, is that most of the time, this is the only thing that Christians usually want to address. So a Christian will come to someone who is an addict, who, is, who has been uh, wrapped up in addiction, and they'll say, well, you know what? You need to stop believing the lie. You need to put that down, and, and you need to be transformed in the renewal of your mind. Read this book of the Bible, pray every day, start replacing that lie with the truth, and you're going to be great. And that's all true. But what if your brain is broken? What if your brain is incapable of seeing the problem to begin with? What if it's been hijacked, and you've been taken captive, and you're incapable of asking for help? You're incapable of asking for mercy. Jesus demonstrates it in this passage to someone who's incapable. Now, Jesus is the Son of God. He can deal with demons differently than we can. He has all the authority as God in the flesh. But listen, we have tools from the New Testament to deal with addiction. The New Testament outlines a process by which we walk with someone into actual freedom, into physical freedom, into emotional freedom, into spiritual freedom. It's the one another's of the New Testament. We talk about them all the time. Love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. James 3, verse 17, it says that the wisdom that is from above is full of mercy. In other words, take into consideration the condition and needs of others even when they can't see how bad their condition really is. 
So let me give you a truth here. Sometimes showing mercy means helping a person who cannot help themselves. Sometimes showing mercy means helping a person who cannot help themselves, who doesn't even know to ask for help in the beginning. You love them, you show compassion to them, you seek their freedom even when they're unaware. So who should get mercy? Who should get mercy? For starters, people who are incapable of asking for it. Are we having fun yet? Secondly, people who are capable of asking and ask. People who are capable of asking and ask. The man is incapable. He's been hijacked by this demon. Uh, But someone else is capable in this story of asking for mercy, and they do ask. Who is it? The demon. Yes, the demon. Verses 28 and 29, it says, The demon cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. He begs Jesus for mercy. Why? Because he knows who Jesus really is. I always like to point out when I'm teaching through the Gospels, we talked about this in our New Testament class, that the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish promised anointed one who was promised and prophesied in Jewish scriptures is outright rejected by the Jewish people despite the fact that literally every single other person in the story recognizes him as who he really is. You have Gentiles, you have Roman centurions, you have all these Roman guards who are going, you know, Lord, just say the word. I know authority and you have authority over all things. You you have the, the little girl, you have all these different people throughout the story. None of them are Jews. They all recognize Jesus. Even the demons recognize Jesus for who he is. And the Jews are like, hmm. I'm not convinced. (laughs) It's just a great amount of irony in in this story. So he asked for mercy. Start with me in verse 30. It says, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, and so he gave them permission. This is shocking. Like, this is a shocking part of the story. The man could not ask for mercy, but the demon could. And and so he does. He's like, Jesus, please don't send us back to hell. It's horrible there. Please have mercy on us, right? Instead, permit us to go into these pigs, anything but the abyss. Please don't send us back there. And and the most shocking detail about this story is that Jesus actually has mercy on them. He has mercy on the demons. He gives them permission not to go back to the abyss, but to go instead into these pigs, And then keep reading, verse 33, the demons came out of the man and into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and they drowned. So Jesus has mercy on them. The demons still self-destruct, and I think that's important for you to hear just as a side note. Sometimes we treat mercy as a fix-all for people, right? As if, like, if I show them mercy, then they'll change, right? If 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 I just am merciful with them, this will be the thing that pushes them to make better choices, and and that's rarely true. It's rarely true. Listen, this is another truth that I want you to get. Mercy does not always prevent self-destructive behavior. Don't don't show mercy to people expecting that to change them. Only the Spirit of God can change them. Mercy changes you as you deal with them. 
And it is impactful on them, but it's not the reason why we do it. Now, why are we merciful then? Let me ask you that. Why, why does the Bible call us to mercy? If it's not to fix people, what does Jesus say in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 26? Be merciful even as who? Your Father is merciful. You see, we are merciful because we are children of the Father. And the Father has been merciful to us, and so therefore we are to be merciful to other people. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment and, and give you a couple of takeaways from this part of the passage. Sometimes it's helpful, I think, not to pull it apart word for word and, and really dive into the Greek and all that, but just to kind of come away with some, some big overarching takeaways that come out of this passage, I think, really nicely. And, and the first one is not maybe the best Christmas takeaway, um, but it's one that I think is important for us to talk about, and that is this. Hell is much worse than we can imagine. It's one of the things we learn from this story. It's so bad that the demons would rather go into pigs and drown themselves than go back there, right? Hell is a difficult topic to talk about, isn't it? No one ever wants to talk about it. How many of you know and love C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis is, is one of my favorites. C.S. Lewis once said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell. Like if I could just, if God gave me one choice, right, you can take, take away any detail of this whole thing, hell is usually what most people would choose. It's not a favorite topic, but it is in the Bible, and so it is important that we understand a little bit about it. Um, one of the words that is used in the Greek to describe hell is the word Hades. You've probably heard this term before. It's just borrowed right out of Greek mythology. It's the underworld of Greek mythology, so it's sometimes used to communicate something that Greeks would understand. It was not a good place to go, and so they would use that word. Overwhelmingly, the word that they used more than anything was the, the Greek word Gehenna, Gehenna was a physical place in Jerusalem, right outside the city. It was a dump site for garbage and dead bodies. It was usually always on fire day and night because what would happen is they would dump this garbage and these dead bodies into this valley, the Valley of Hinnom, and they would set them on fire to get rid of them so that they had more space to bring in more garbage and more dead bodies. It's a very visible place in Jerusalem um, such that as Jesus is talking about hell, which he does actually quite a bit in the Gospels, and he uses this term Gehenna, you could almost imagine the people as they're listening to Jesus kind of look over and see the fires of Gehenna actually rising. It was a very local spot that would have been very visible to most places in Jerusalem. Uh, fire at this time, fire was, was thought to be the worst way to die, the most painful way to die. And so it was used often to communicate the reality of hell because it's the worst thing you can imagine. And so, yeah, we'll use that to describe what goes on. But the reality is, it's actually much worse than that. But this is how the Bible describes it. Mark 9, 43, a place of unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, 42, a fiery furnace, that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's not always fire-related. This is interesting. There are other ways that it's described that are also really bad. 2 Peter 2, 4 calls it a place of gloomy darkness. Daniel 12, 2, a place of everlasting contempt. But I want you to get this. This is one of the big things that we get from this passage is that it Hell is actually much worse than any of those things. Scripture uses finite means to communicate something about a place that is outside of space and time. Hell's not like a place you can just go to and show people, you know, right? Better make good choices or you're going to end up here. You, you can't do that. It's not a, it's not a real place. And, and so it, it's not fully comprehensible for us because it's not tangible to us. 
You can't go there, see it, touch it, smell it, so on and so forth. So as bad as fire is, and weeping, and gnashing of teeth, and darkness, and contempt, and all those things, those are only words, ideas, concepts the Scripture uses to communicate this place is unimaginably bad, and actually much worse than you can imagine. It's so bad that the demons, Satan's minions, beg their sworn enemy to have mercy on them. Now, I don't say this to scare you into godliness. That's not my goal at all. I don't believe you can scare anyone into heaven. That's not how the gospel works, okay? But it can motivate us in the way that we love and show mercy to other people. Because when we, when we can really grasp how bad hell actually is, it motivates us to do everything we can to prevent other people from going there. And again, not that it's up to you to prevent them, but God will use you to share your story, to share the gospel, to share hope with people who are broken, who are perhaps even incapable of asking for help, such that He would use you to bring redemption into their lives. I heard a, a, a news reporter one time um, talk about a particular terrorist that had died. And it wasn't on the news, it was, a, it was like an outside interview. And he said something to the effect, I don't remember now what the exact words were, but he said something to the effect of, yeah, well, luckily that guy's in hell now. And I thought, you really don't understand how bad hell is if you're saying luckily someone's there. No bad person, I don't care how bad they are, it's not a good place for them to go. It's an unimaginably bad place. It's much worse than we can imagine. Number two, this is the second also challenging takeaway. If Jesus can show mercy to demons, we can show mercy to anyone. Now, I want to be real careful here. I do not want to minimize real hurt or wounds that you have experienced at the hands of someone else, okay? Um, not, not my intention at all. But, but I want you to understand here that in this story, we're talking about a demon, We're not talking about a bad person. We're not talking about an evil person. We're talking about a literal demon, a a minion of Satan himself. And and let's get this right. Jesus doesn't like bless him. He doesn't befriend him. He's not like trying to be his buddy, but he does ask for mercy and Jesus gives him mercy. And so listen, if Jesus can show mercy to a demon, then we can show mercy to anyone regardless of how bad they might be. It doesn't mean that you, you... reconcile. I'm not going to any of that. Again, mercy is for you. It goes right hand in hand with forgiveness, which again is another topic for another discussion, but we can show mercy to anyone regardless of how bad they are if Jesus can show mercy to these demons. So who are we to show mercy to? We show mercy to those who are incapable of asking, We show mercy to those who are capable of asking and ask, regardless of how bad they are. And finally, we show mercy to people who are capable of asking and refuse to ask. Now, this last part of the story is great. The herdsmen of these pigs, I can just imagine them like they're standing off, right, kind of minding their own business, doing their jobs, and they see this whole thing go down. They know the guy in the cemetery as well. Everyone knows this guy. 
They're, they're, they keep their distance from him. They see this whole thing happen, right? The, the demons are, are expelled from the man. They go into this guy's pigs. It says a large number of them rush over a cliff and fall down into the water and drown. And they're not even upset about this at all. I mean, economically, this would have been a huge blow to them. Like their whole herd just went away and drowned. And they're not even concerned about that. They're like, we got to go tell everybody what we just saw. Right? They didn't have Twitter or Facebook, so like, they have to actually go do the work. And so they go into town, and, and they are telling everybody, because remember, everybody knows cemetery guy, man of the tombs, and so they are telling everybody they know. We get to verse 35 and 36. It says, then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So they come and, and they tell the people in the country, guys, man of the tombs just got healed. The demons are gone. They just went in my pigs and they're drowning. And the people are like, no way. And, and so they run over there. They, they see him. He's sitting down, which is not normal. Normally he's up like breaking chains and causing violence, right? He's clothed, which is again, not normal. He's normally not wearing any clothes. And he's in his right mind, not normal. And so they're like, what is going on? This is truly a miracle. And they rejoice and they bring gifts to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, will you heal us too? I know several people. Come and stay in our country. You can stay as long as you want. You're a miracle maker. That's not what happens. That's not what happens at all. Verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart. For they were seized with great fear. And so he got into the boat and returned. So, so check this out. They were afraid of the demon guy. Like, we can't bound him with chains. We, we can't control this guy. They were scared of him. Jesus comes along. He's even more powerful than this guy. And they're like, if we couldn't control man of the tombs, there's no way we can control Jesus. They didn't see a savior. They saw a sorcerer. And so they ask him to leave. Now, look, maybe it's just me, okay? Maybe I am much worse than all of you church-going, wonderful Christian people, uh, in my flesh, this is just annoying, isn't it? Like, this is an annoying part. How ungrateful are these people? How disrespectful are these people? Jesus just did them a huge favor. He just did this incredible miracle, and they're kicking them out? And I'm just saying, like, if I were Jesus, praise God I'm not, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, fine, you want me out, I'm out. I'll leave. I'll never come back. Y'all are going to be alone for eternity. You had your shot. You blew it. No second chances for you. I'm done. Garrison's gone. Wipe them off the map. Forget about them. Most ungrateful person on earth. But that's not what Jesus does. There are two things that he does here that I think really demonstrate powerful grace and mercy and lessons I think we can learn from the Lord here. Number one, he was sensitive to their fear. I think this is an important thing for us to hear. It says that the people were seized with great fear. The word seized here in the Greek, suneko, it's a word that means to be confined or bound up. They were confined with great fear. They were bound up with great fear. It's interesting, the man that was once bound up with actual chains has been freed, and the people who were free are now bound up with great fear because of Jesus' action. But it, listen to this, Jesus doesn't fight with them. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try to explain what happens. It just simply says he got into the boat and returned. And I think that's a good lesson for us as Christians to hear. We, we live in a time where there's a lot of fear right now over a lot of things. 
And as a result of that, there, there is a lot of tension and a lot of disagreements because of those fears. And what Jesus shows us here is that we don't always have to win every disagreement, right? We don't always have to prove a point. We don't always have to get the last thing in in our discussion with people. Jesus was sensitive to their fear. He just gets in the boat and, and begins to return. But, but understand this, he doesn't abandon them, and abandon them in their fear either. It's the second part. His mercy overcomes their fear. Look at verses 38 and 39. It says, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. He's like, Lord, let me go with you. These people don't like me anyways. I've been living in a cemetery for the last who knows how long. Let me go with you. I'll be one of your disciples. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And it says, But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home, the garrisons, and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He sends the man back as a witness to the goodness of God. Why? So those very people who just rejected him will hear of God's mercy anyways. See, Jesus left when he was asked, but his mercy didn't leave. He physically departed from them, but his presence, the presence of goodness and mercy remained with the man because the man remained. The people were capable of asking for help, for mercy, for anything, but they don't. They reject him out of fear, and he overcomes their fear through this man's witness. Now, again, remember our definition from the beginning. We're almost done here, I promise. We, we take into consideration the condition and needs of another person. That is mercy. That is exactly what Jesus does here. He takes into consideration their condition, which is what? They're fearful. They're seized with great fear. But he also considers their need. They need my grace and mercy. And so he treats them accordingly. He says, fine, I'll depart. I'll get in the boat. I'll go. But you stay. You go back into town and you tell everybody what has happened. That is mercy. We show mercy to those who are incapable of asking. Some people are. Some people can't. We show mercy to people who, who are capable and ask, regardless of how bad they are. If Jesus can do it for a demon, we can do it for, for anyone. And we show mercy to those who are capable and even refuse. You know, this is, I feel like a broken record for saying this. Um, it's something that James and I talk about on a very regular basis right now. This is an extremely tense and polarizing season of life, isn't it? It's just, it's just not, I mean, think about like last year, even two years ago, the things that people were complaining about. I'd give anything to go back to that. It's a tense time. And there are a lot of people who are gripped with and living in fear for various things. There are some folks who fear my, and myself included, overreaching mask mandates. I wear a mask because I love people and I want to protect people. But there's a fear that, that mandates become an overreach that, that really jeopardize our freedom. That's something to be concerned about. On the other hand, there are people who fear the anti-mask mentality because they are immunocompromised or they have loved ones that are immunocompromised or they have loved ones that have died. Like that's happened now, you realize. A lot of people. Brian and I came and picked up a woman from this church last week and took her to the hospital because we both had it. And so we're like, well, we, we got the antibodies, we'll take her. She was in rough shape. I mean, this is a serious thing. So there's fear on both sides of that, isn't there? And people act out of that fear. 
And it creates tension between the two people. There are, uh, there's a great amount of fear for conservative ideology because we, we value freedom. We value things that are very important to us and, we're, and we'll stand up for it. There's people who fear liberal ideology. And so there's, there's a lot of tension there, isn't there? It's a very unstable time, and frankly, I think the reason I chose this passage this week to talk about is because it reminded me we all need mercy. We all need mercy. And so as Christ followers, regardless of where you fall on these issues, let's give it. Let's give mercy to those who are incapable of asking for it. Let's do that. Let's give mercy to those who are capable of asking for it and ask regardless of what they've done, regardless of how bad they are. I'm not saying do away with punishment or, or legal or anything, but as believers, let's just show them mercy. Let's show mercy to those who are capable of asking for it and even refuse, maybe because of their fear. Let's take into consideration people's condition and needs and treat them accordingly. See, I asked in the beginning, who should get mercy? But I think the real question that the Bible presents to us is, who shouldn't? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are, um, as always, challenged by Your Word. You always have a way with Your Holy Spirit to convict us, to, to push just the right buttons, to unveil just the right things in our lives that, that we have no answers for, that forces us to lean upon You in faith and, and, and do what Your Word directs us to do. And I pray, God, as the Holy Spirit is making His applications in, in each of our lives this morning, we would remember Your merciful hand on our lives that led us here, that led me here, someone unworthy, someone who did not live a good life, who was not looking or asking for mercy, and God, You had mercy on me anyways, as You did all of us. Help us be merciful as You, our Father, are merciful especially in this season, especially in this Christmas season where we are so near in remembrance of You coming in the flesh as a baby, that powerful night where everything changed. We love You. God, we honor You. I thank You for each of these people here and those online watching. As You begin to work in their lives, I pray, God, that You would continue to touch them and remind them of your love for them. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, well, listen, next week we have a lot of things going down. So next Saturday is our, uh, sorry, next Friday, I keep doing that, is our Family Fun Christmas drive through uh, We would love to see you there, 6 to 7.30 p.m. Uh, if you do plan on going, I want to just cue you off on something, okay? Go online this week to either YouTube or Facebook and watch Good Morning City on a Hill. I think it's actually just Facebook. Is that right? Both. It is both. Watch Good Morning City on a Hill because the drive-through for, for uh, Family Fun Christmas follows the story of a life of a guy that we interview in that, uh, in that, that, that episode. So go check that out. Secondly, remember 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve, outdoor service. It's going to be short. It's going to be sweet. It's going to be meaningful. We are going to take the Lord's Supper 
We'd love to have you there for that as well. God bless you. We will see you next time.